Seth Early is with me today. He is the CEO and founder of Early Information Science and the author of The AI-Powered Enterprise. He was also named a top 50 global thinker on AI for, for 2022 from Thinkers 360. Seth, welcome to CC Life Science. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about the potential for AI in the future and how differentiation by AI will be a competitive advantage. So mm. tell us about that competitive advantage that you see. Sure. It's any, anytime you look at what we're trying to do with any technology initiative, anything that we're doing around user experience, web experience, e-commerce, employee experience, researcher experience, anything at all, what we're always trying to do is make it easier for people to do their jobs. Remember, any technology initiative is always to improve how we access information, how we do our jobs, how we are able to retrieve that information, contextualize it, make sense of it, and so on. So search, for example, just plain old search, Google search or any search you use, has used AI and machine learning for decades, right? It has always been baked into that process. Machine learning algorithms have been around for a very, very long time. And it's only in the last decade or so that they become much more practical because of the, the availability of data. They run on data. The power of computing, computing power, the cost of computing power, the ability to do things on the cloud. There's all these different things that have come together that have made machine learning and AI more practical and more cost-effective and more, more achievable because it started in academia. Now, what's interesting is when we, there's a lot of things we take for granted, such as word processing, right? We are, we use word or whatever to write a document. That was one of the earliest incarnations of AI, believe it or not, because it took human judgment and expertise and then it embodied it in a program, it took a designer. You used to take people could lay out mints and you used all of these rules of thumb and all of these heuristics and all of these practices that an expert typesetter would use and they put it into a program. And it, and that was AI. But here's the other interesting thing is a researcher maybe 20 years ago said something like, no AI, AI by definition doesn't work. As soon as it works, we call it something else. So speech recognition, <laughs> word processing, spell check, all these things are baked in. But now these days, everything is AI, right? Every vendor says they have AI. There's AI in there. And so at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make our businesses smarter and faster and more cost-effective. We're trying to improve the customer's experience. And that can be an internal customer versus an external customer. That can be an employee. How do people get to the stuff that they need when they need it? There's two big buckets of AI. There's the AI that is primarily focused on data and looking for patterns in that data. And then there's cognitive AI, what people refer to as cognitive computing. And it's really a misnomer because there's no cognition, right? These systems don't think, they don't think like a human. And there's a great deal of mischaracterization of AI to say, oh, it thinks like a person. No, it doesn't, right? It may emulate that, but it doesn't. But the point to make about competitive advantage is we're always in this arms race to make things faster, cheaper, better. And that includes any kind of experience. So when you think about the enterprise can be considered a, from, an, from a biological perspective, you can think of the information flows 
and the ecosystem of applications and information as something that is flowing through the organization. We want to speed up the information metabolism of the organization, get the information to people faster so they can make a decision and get their output to someone else who can use it as an input or to a customer. So what we're doing with AI and machine learning is we're trying to remove friction from the process. We're trying to make it easier for that information to flow. So we want to be able to personalize things. What do you need now? Who are you? Are you a researcher? Are you a clinician? Are you someone who is on the commercialization side? Are you doing go-to-market? What are you doing? What information do you need to accomplish your task now? And all of that requires multiple signals from your systems and the ability to respond to those signals in a way that gives you the information you need at that moment. Now, that is increasingly, that can be done through traditional information architecture approaches, but increasingly because of the complexity of the environment and the number of signals, and again, signals are digital body language, right? It's all of that interaction. It's the things you do on a website. It's what you click through. It's what you respond to. It's the things that you read, the things that you write, all of that are signals. And those signals can be used to contextualize the information. So at the end of the day, this is always about speeding up the ability to make decisions, to find information, to produce an information output, right? Because all we do is deal with information. And when you think about it, I like to hold up my phone. I say, here's my magical device. This is made of sand, oil, and metal all very cleverly arranged with millions of person years of knowledge in there. And so even today, products have less physical material and more information. So when we're producing products, supply chain, a physical supply chain is an information supply chain. Get to research questions and answers that will help us move our process forward, move our commercialization forward, move clinical trials forward, right? Yeah. So you laid out, mentioned uh, many of the things that are going to be made possible given the abilities of AI and the huge numbers of data transactions. So for this audience, the analogy is the genome project in a sense, which right. really came to life. I've told this to a few people and many people know it, but when I was in graduate school, mm. there was a little pushback on the genome project because science or nature put out an article that said, if we put every scientist, every biologist on this project now, it mm -hmm. will still never finish in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. it finished early because mm -hmm. of advances in computing power right. to exactly. a large degree and the ability to sequence things longer and faster. That's right. so the same kind of thing is happening here. You mentioned data architecture as being yeah. the a critical piece of yeah. a lot of this. Tell us why that's so When you think about terminology. When you think about science is full of terminology to explain com complex concepts and processes. And so when you try to get a piece of information related to a topic that you're working on, maybe you're working on mechanisms of action for an anti-inflammatory response, or you're trying to find very specific information and what we need to do is we need to have what are called reference architectures, right? We need to have terminology that drives the information that we're working with. I like to call it isness and aboutness. What is this thing? It's a research report. It's a clinical trial. It is a, a new molecular entity. And what is it about? It's in, a, in other words, if you had a pile of research papers, well, you had a thousand research papers 
What, how do you tell them apart, right? What's the aboutness? What are the diseases? What are the indications? What's the mechanism of action? What are the drug targets? What are the symptoms? What are the generic compounds? What are the brand name compounds? What are the things that will tell you how to separate these papers, how to put them in additional piles? And so we're always looking at isness and aboutness. So when we think about architecture is the underlying structure of that information, right? The terminology, the lexicons that we use to describe various entities, various things. And what's interesting about them is there's lots of standards out there, right? The, to try to articulate these things. And we have MeSH and Medra and ICD-9 and ICD-10 and an RX norm and SNOMED and LOIN. And those are all attempts to standardize and normalize vocabularies to describe things because we know we can use different terms to describe the same thing. We can use the same terms to describe different things. So what happens is we build out, and these are called taxonomies. Sometimes they're flat list, but taxonomy is basically a hierarchy. And I like to say hierarchies are for humans, right? Systems don't care about long lists, but humans do, right? We always contextualize. We look at headings on a website and we say, well, what, where do I find my information? I have a mental model of what's in there. And I can say, oh, diseases, I'll look for something under here or mechanisms of action, whatever it might be. But the point is that when we build these hierarchies, they become the source of truth around how we name things. And if we can't, if we don't name them correctly, we can't find them. If we don't, if we can't find them, we can't use them. So it aids in the findability. When we name things, we're saying to the organization, this is something that's important. And we name it across multiple dimensions. There's no single grand galactic Uber taxonomy in an organization. There are always multiple vocabularies, as I just mentioned, you know, diseases, indications, treatments, mechanisms back, et cetera. And so the point here is that when we build these out for our organization, it actually gives us a competitive advantage because it makes the information that we are dealing with easier for our people to find. You need to use standards for efficiency, right? For data exchange, but standardization provides efficiency. Differentiation provides competitive advantage. So when you think about how you're organizing your information, the differentiation from those standards are the things that are going to give you competitive advantage because it makes it about your company, about your organization, your department, your research programs, whatever it might be. And that's going to be different than your competition. And so if you can streamline your information flows by making that information more readily access accessible, there's a lot of dark data in organizations, all this unstructured information that people have no idea what it's about. You can use machine learning programs to do the text processing to understand what's there, right? By using these lists of terminology, by classifying across multiple dimensions. And the technology will do that today. So you can say, oh my goodness, here's something that is really valuable that we didn't know about, right? Or here's a way to take all of this research that we've done, collate it and make sense of it. So the whole point here of building out these vocabularies, it's the, this becomes the knowledge scaffolding of the organization. So if you have, again, the, the diseases that you focus on and the indications and you have certain types of entities and molecular entities you're working with, all of those are unique to your organization. And when you build the relationships, so we have multiple taxonomies, but if you say, here are the treatments for this disease, or here is the mechanism of action 
for this target. All of that, those relationships between those taxonomies form what's called an ontology. An ontology describes your domain of knowledge. For a law firm, it's going to be legal issues and contracts and court cases and, and filings and depositions and all of that. That's very different from life sciences, right? So your domain of knowledge is described by an ontology, and that ontology becomes the knowledge scaffolding of the organization. It's where you put all your stuff, and it makes it easier for you to navigate, for you to retrieve, for you to get new insights, to synthesize, to bring structured and unstructured information together. The why, I like to say the unstructured is the why, the structure is the what happened, and the unstructured is why did it happen, right? So it's the what and the why. And so when you have this done correctly, it makes an enormous difference in the organization. It can reduce the time to value for just about any process. And this is not a nice to have, this is a need to have. And every life sciences organization out there is working in this area, is doing work in this area. Somebody in your organization is doing this. They may not be doing it optimally, which is fine, but they're moving the needle. But this has to become part of your competitive differentiator. It is that critical. So it can't be thought of as, oh, it's a data thing. Oh, offshore. Oh, yeah, let IT handle it. No, this has to be strategically important board level initiatives. That's what it needs to be. It needs to have executive attention and focus. And you need to understand the business cases that you're building this stuff toward. I ran into an organization, a life sciences firm that built what's called a knowledge graph, which is basically the ontology plus the data, right? The knowledge, ontology is the structure, and then you have the data, and then you have something called a knowledge graph. We'll talk more about that. But I asked what the business case was, and no, we didn't really have one. We spent a, um, about a million dollars, and we just had to get started. Okay, that's great. If you get a million dollars to just get started, great, but you better have an ROI. You better have some business case because you're not going to get another million dollars and another million dollars without making that justification. But there's lots and lots of opportunities for optimization in the organization using these types of techniques. So as I read parts of your book, it, as you described a hierarchy, a branch tree going down, but mm -hmm. the ontology looks more like a web because everything's Correct. related to some degree to something else. Like a six degrees Kevin That's right. Bacon. That's Diagram. exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. When you start thinking about this ontology, it, it is exactly that six degrees of Kevin Bacon, because when you start looking at an ontology structure, what you're doing is you're providing ways of connecting from one concept to another. So in Kevin Bacon, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, you say, what movie has Kevin Bacon in? And then what other actor has been in that movie, in the same movie or another movie that Kevin Bacon has been in. And so what you're trying to do, or you look at the directors of the movie and what other movies has that director directed, right? And then what actors are in that movie? And then you make these connections back because you have all of these entry points. When you build this out effectively, you have the ability to, to navigate across lots of different entities. So you might say, I need to understand a compound, budesonide, uh, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory, right? But I need to understand the brand names and I need to understand the combinations of drugs that those that budesonide goes into. And I need to understand what the routes of administration are. And I need to understand the clinical drugs 
I need to understand the other drugs that are that are related. So budesonide is treated for things like irritable bowel disease and asthma and allergic rhinitis. But there are other, It's a, the mechanism of action is, and I'm just reading from a slide here that I have as an example, glucocorticoid agonist, and it decreases protein synthesis. That's the physiological effect. And then you could start to say, okay, what else does this? What else can treat asthma? What are the other compounds that can do this? Or what are other compounds that have the same mechanism of action? So what you're doing is you're able to navigate across all of these different entities to say, what questions can I ask that would be related to this particular compound or this particular disease or this particular mechanism of action? And then when you have those conceptual relationships, you have the ability to ask lots of questions that you normally would not be able to ask or answer. So you use the word navigate there a lot. So now, mm-hmm. besides the Kevin Bacon analogy, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of a roadmap where mm-hmm. maybe a taxonomy is a highway, and but you're sitting here in city X and you say, what's around me and mm-hmm. how do I get from here to wherever, whatever I find interesting? And you can also say, I want to know more about city X. What are the things I can define about city X? I can define the restaurants. I can define... The tourist attractions, I can find museums, I can define all these other entities, all these other attributes of the, and then use that to navigate to another city that has those similar attributes or to find another resource that you need. And so again, think of the city, one entity, but that city has lots of different attributes and it has lots of other entities. And those entities are related to the city through that ontology relationship, right? Because you can have a, a list of cities, you can have a list of restaurants. Here are the restaurants in this city, right? And then you can start to say, here are Japanese restaurants in this city, which is another entity. Or what other Japanese things do they have, right? It's not just restaurants. The idea is you're taking these attributes and entities and using them as a jumping off point to do other exploration and gain other insights and find other resources. So that's that's a great example of that in terms of when you say you're in the city, and then you can connect to other cities, but then there's also this web of relationships of other things that are in that city. And that does become that ontology, right? What are all the things I can define about a city? It's ra- rather than thinking of ontology as something that's out there, well, we need one, right? Or we need a knowledge graph. Think of it as it's the underlying infrastructure. It's the underlying scaffolding for all of your information. So it's more than master data right? Because it talks about processes. It talks about other types of organizing principles. The C-suite doesn't get how critical this is yet. And I'll give you a quick story. I worked with a publisher many years ago who was getting beaten to market by their competition. They had a, they were in the K through 12 textbook space and that's highly customized stuff. And they had found a situation where one of their competitors was really beating them. And they're like, why is this? So The CEO was asking these questions. We did some research. We found out that they used an information structure that componentized the pieces that went into a textbook, right? According to grade level and topic and subject and all of these different parameters, right? To say, how do you customize this? That repository had 1 million objects and an editor could start with a really good starting point. It didn't do the whole job, but they could build an example, a prototype very quickly, beat them to market by six months. CEO says, great, why, why don't we have that? And the team said, well, that's the product we've been trying to get mobilized for the last three years and it keeps getting kicked down the road and it doesn't get funded. Great, let's do it now. 
okay, how long is it going to take? At least a year. Competition's moving ahead. They're three years ahead again. And they weren't able to do it fast enough. They lost the market. They got killed. It's existential to organizations. That is an example where when it comes up to hit you you're not, and you're blindsided, it's too late. And I'll tell you, there's, there's an organization that we worked with over the years and they have truly operationalized their ontologies and their knowledge grant. And they do something called create once, publish everywhere with content. This is the ultimate reusability. They create it and they have a centralized process for its decentralized creation, but it goes out to field service. It goes out to the marketing organization. It goes out to customer self-service. It goes to the call center. It goes to channel partners. It goes to content embedded within the technology itself. And it drives their virtual assistants. That's what I've been talking about for the last 10 years is you use this to drive intelligent assistance, cognitive AI. The thing that that's that what's between in, in my book, I talk about a scenario where this character, Alan Perkins, from the time he gets up in the morning to the time he goes to bed, he deals with these conversational assistants. They seem human. He has some that work for him, some that work for other organizations. He uses it to order parts. He uses it to plan travel. He uses it to manage his portfolio. All of these different things, different entities. That will be our future, right? We know it's not their case. We know these things suck, right? That's a technical term. But we know that will be the future, right? We know that. It's just inevitable. That's what technology does. What's standing between us today and that tomorrow? It's the data. It's the content. It's the knowledge. So if an organization is not working on their knowledge management now, because the same things you need to train a virtual assistant, you need to train a human, okay? You can make the information easier to find and use for a human today and prepare yourself for that future of virtual assistance. And if you've not started that path and you're just doing them one off and you're paying crazy money to people to build these things, it has to be a core competency. And it starts with knowledge. It starts with content. And it starts with that information architecture, that isness and aboutness. End of rant. <laughs> okay. So you jumped ahead right. a little bit on me. I want to go back and have two more questions about how the data gets in and how it gets out. So the first sure. one is, how are these ontologies built? It sounds mm -hmm. like fair amount of work by humans yes. to categorize. And then yes. I guess I'm really curious about how those get connected. Yes. The so those are great questions. And the way they get built is you have to start with the problem because they have so much applicability and they can do so many different things. If we just say we're going to build an ontology, that's too broad, right? You can start with saying we need to get our names, our drugs in development and our methodology. We can start doing that. But really to build an effective ontology, you need use cases, you need scenarios, you need a business problem to solve. And I like to call it the excuse case, right? It's the use case that gives you the excuse to build this stuff, right? You can get a payoff on this use case and this scenario, but you can do so much more with building the ontology, but you have that core value proposition. You have that core business case, but it starts with defining the problem, right? What ours is the problem that we're trying to solve and to address? And you start to look at symptoms, right? When we solve problems, we don't look at an individual symptom. We look at groupings of symptoms, right? So when you do discovery or interviews or working sessions, you get a lot of complaints, right? You get a lot of problems, a lot of symptoms. And then you have to say, all right, 
what is the root cause of these symptoms? Group them together and say, here is the problem we want to solve. So you take the, and there's lots of different ways to do prioritization. And there's, we have many different models for that. A lot of stuff, all the stuff is in the book, by the way. But once we have that problem defined, now we can start to say, who is impacted by that? Who are the users? And then you can start to say, what is that day-to-day process? What are those specific things that they need to accomplish day-to-day where they don't have the right information or they can't find the information or they can't make a decision, then we need to say, okay, in those circumstances, what is the specific information that they need? That is the core, that's core taxonomy information architecture. So it sounds very simple, but it has done, it's done in a way where you have to extrapolate classes of use case. And when you extrapolate those classes of use case, you can build these scenarios that cover lots and lots of different problems. If I can give you that that information when you need it, I can then test that use case. I can say, I can put you in front of a system that we've redesigned, that we have a new ontology for, and we can say, can you accomplish this task? So it's core. So you build libraries of use cases for the organization. That becomes an asset of increasing value. And so with this, we start defining the different vocabularies. So for applied materials, which made it into a recent Harvard Business Review special topic issue on AI in the workplace, and it was what their best of archive edition. And it was about, is your data infrastructure ready for AI? We built about 25 different or 24 different vocabularies to describe the things that they had to do in terms of their equipment and locations and the types of parts and the processes and the troubleshooting and all that stuff. All of those become part of your ontology. So by describing your world, your domain, you're deriving those organizing principles based on your use case, right? Your business problem, your content, your users. That's the critical piece is it has to be defined in such a way that is about your particular, because even if you take two companies doing exactly the same thing in the same work, the same research area, they will call things differently. They will have different organizing principles. They may have a lot that will be similar or the same, but they will have differentiators, right? Because it's your unique signature. It's like you take two stores selling the exact same things. They have different layouts. They have different look and feel. They have different branding. They have different organizing principles, right? And that's why stores don't look the same because they want to understand your world, your mental model. So we're trying to build this ontology that represents the mental model of your users, of your researchers, of your clinicians, of your your commercialization people. What is it that they care about? How do they think about solving their problem? And then we can test it. So building an ontology has to be done in such a way that we are impacting a work process, right? We are building this in such a way that we understand that at the end of this is what we're getting, right? And we can prove that it actually is solving a problem. That's how you derive the ontology. It's complex, but not mysterious. People should be able to explain to you what they're doing and what the output will be. And when you talk about AI and applying it to AI, the ontology is the reference data. AI does not know your products and your services and your processes and your solutions. It doesn't know those things unless you teach it. Now, there are standards. We talked about standards. Nice thing about standards, there's so many to choose from, right? Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership sought to map all those together, but it's become another standard, right? And so what you need to do is leverage standards, again, for efficiency. You can build on them. There are many ontology tools that have built-in vocabularies. 
but you have to fine tune it to your organization. But again, it all starts with that core architecture. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap it up here, but my last question was going to be, but you just answered it. Most (laughs) of the AIs I know are trained to answer a single question now or perform a single task. This is a little bit different, but to get started, you do need to have a hypothesis and a problem you're trying to solve, but then you can build out from that to do other things. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. And think of it this way. You, you want to start with a narrow set of use cases, right? And the narrow set of use cases is going to help you again, identify the problem and test for it, but it should be, you can extrapolate those use cases. Once you have that structure, you can tag more content, right? You can access more information. So you're building to test a particular set of conditions that are narrow but you're expanding those libraries of use cases. And that same structure has to be extensible. And again, keep in mind that when you're trying to build this for an AI application, quote unquote, I'd say the first thing about AI is forget AI, right? Forget AI and focus on the problem, focus on the business problem. AI is another tool in your toolkit. Machine learning is a a massive numbers of tools in your toolkit, but it all comes back to beginning with that problem and building that structure so that you can extend it. So it has to be extensible. That's the reason why you build what's called the domain model when you first start. In the domain model, all the big picture organizing principles, all the big buckets that things go into, and then you dive very deeply into defining terminology at a granular level to solve your use case. But because you've done a broad description of that domain, it's shallow, but it's broad, it's very extensible. And that's when you can build on to those use cases and build on those use cases and build on them. And that becomes the library. And again, the ontology continually evolves and it requires human judgment to build that and to apply that. But it's a great question and organizations always want to know where, where do I start? And I think you got to start, we offer working sessions on that sort of stuff, but I think you really want to start with understanding the most critical issues to the organization today. And realizing that the things you do to help your humans are can be done in such a way to prepare for more automation down the road. Nice. I like it. I like it because it can seem like a big overwhelming thing. But if you focus on here's a problem, it's a priority. We want to solve that. You can go for that's a way to get started because some of these things. Absolutely. Who knows? So Seth they can Ridley, be so big. Thank, no, you're thank you so much for your yeah. time. I'm going to put a link to your LinkedIn, your book and your website. Great. In the show notes for this. And uh, yeah, I love to talk shop. So don't be shy if there are folks out there that want to geek out on ontologies and knowledge graphs and cognitive computing. I'm happy to do that. I'm sure they will. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure.